0: Father, we want to just commit this time to you as we open your word. I pray that you will speak to us. We thank you um, for leaving your word that we may know you and for more importantly for your spirit in our hearts to bear witness. And so we commit this time to you. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, thanks for coming. Um, we're, we are coming to the end of our second series on the journey. We started the journey series so that we can understand more of our church vision. Particularly this year, we are We focus on Spiritus Vitae, which is the first part of our vision to be a fervently, uh, spirit filled, fervently praying church family. And so in um, January, we talk about the first journey series. It's on what is spirit filled. So, as a recap, remember this chart that spirit filled basically means we are under the control of the Spirit, we yield control to the Spirit. There are 400 occurrences, about 400 occurrences of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. And yet, there are only four imperatives, right? The others are indicators which is describing the Word of the Spirit. He intercedes for us, He seals us, He baptizes us. But there are only four imperatives. Imperatives meaning uh, He desires that we respond. God desires that we respond to His Word. It's a command. The four imperatives are here, to be filled with the Spirit, we look at Ephesians 5.18, is to be controlled, to yield control, to obey the Spirit. And how do we do that? The other, the other three imperatives firstly to walk walk in the spirit we maintain the feeling of Holy Spirit by walking in the spirit by continuing uh, in obeying the word they grieve not we say that grieve not really is about the horizontal relationship between men and men we do not break the unity particularly using our words or action that's the context of grieving not so when we are grieving the Holy Spirit then we are not being filled with the spirit Quench not, in First Thessalonians, talks about our quenching not prophecy, the promptings of God, the Word of God, you know, to obey instead of ignoring it. And so once again, when we find ourselves quenching the Holy Spirit, then we are not filled with the Holy Spirit. Yeah, okay, that was the first series. <clears throat> this month we talk about what does the Holy Spirit, some of the works of the Spirit, particularly the gifts and the fruit. When we look at the idea of filling of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, there are only 16 occurrences. And when you go and categorize them, they really fall into two main categories. And the Bible, when it talks about filling of the Holy Spirit, it is usually for ministry, serving, or talking about long term character growth. So it's no surprise, you know, where, uh, why we want to deal with the gifts of the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit. The gifts of the Spirit is God gives us gifts. So we can edify and build up the body is for ministry. But the other important aspect is the fruit of the Spirit, character. And so how does, what's the linkage between these two um, gifts of the Spirit and fruit of the Spirit? So let me jump right in. You'll just listen to a message on this, so I do not need to go into this. But essentially these are Christian virtues or we call it, they are results of the work of the Spirit in us. More so than just human efforts. So, we have, when we have the, the Spirit of God, we are expected to have these attributes. So, how do we remember? No, I just, I, I was in this DG the other day and I actually learned something from them. They say, hey, you know, do you know how to remember the fruit of the Spirit? And then they told me, go by syllabus, right? One syllable, two syllabi, three syllabi. And I was so amazed, was like, wow, in my 20 years as Christians, I never realized this. It's like love, joy, peace, and then patience, kindness, goodness. Then faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I was thinking, surely there must be a more theological way to do this, a more cheap way, right, since I'm paid to do this. So I went to figure out, you know, I'm thinking like love, joy, peace is probably more God word, you know, something that we have with God, love of God, joy, peace. And then man word, when we show other people patience, kindness, goodness. And then internally, our faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So which is better? See, I told you I can come up with something different. Okay, this is just a little tidbit for you to remember the fruit of the Spirit. Let's go with a definition. I like this definition because it brings out the triune God, the quality of the triune God. It talks the fruit of the Spirit is the character qualities that God the Father possesses and that God the Holy Spirit imparts to us when we live in trusting obedience to Jesus. Trusting obedience to Jesus essentially is how we define being filled with the Spirit. Okay, so qualities that God possesses and the Spirit of God imparts to us as we continually live in obedience to Jesus. So you see, when we accept Jesus, we are born again, we are a new creation, the Holy Spirit gives us the gifts, right? That's when it begins. But character-wise, this fruit of the Spirit, it takes time to develop as we live in trusting obedience to Jesus. So right off the bat, when you look at this definition, the first thing of the fruit of the Spirit, you must understand that it's not comprehensive, right? There are nine virtues stated, but certainly there are more than nine virtues, don't you think? Now, how do I prove it? If you look in the context where Paul gives us in Galatians 5, the works of flesh, he listed 15 of them. But he did not talk about um, lying, gluttony, murder. All these are not on the list. So surely that the 15 works of flesh is not comprehensive, right? So if it's a contrast then the fruit of the Spirit, the nine virtues, they are similarly, I think, not comprehensive if you're thinking about the qualities of God, including things like faith, hope, thankfulness, forgiveness, moral purity. They are not all, all not stated. So we first have this general understanding that it is a character that God possesses. And certainly this is not comprehensive. Paul gives us nine of them to give us a handle to understand what is this fruit of the Spirit is about. Next, they're not just emotions. They can be, but it's not just how you feel. See, character qualities are determined by how we act more so than how we feel, even though we may feel it. For example, we can get angry. Okay, that's an emotion. But if we do not act unkindly in our anger, we may still manifest the fruit of the Spirit. We may be agitated, fearful about life circumstances, and still manifest the fruit of the Spirit. How? By if we don't reject God, we do not lash out at people, we do not act immorally, but rather we trust God and do the right thing despite our agitation and fear. So you think of this fruit of the Spirit. You know, it's not like, oh, I possess the fruit of the Spirit. Um, oh, You know, I'm in this constant state of emotional tranquility. Now, that's not what having the fruit of Spirit is about. Sometimes you feel certain things, emotions, that comes. It's a bit hard to control but we can respond to it and not act out of anger so as long as I think we make the right choices that is manifesting the fruit of the spirit and I certainly believe with actions comes the emotions right, we first act on it and hopefully the emotions follow but my point is this, the fruit of the spirit is not something it's not an emotional state it doesn't just fluctuate even though it does change it doesn't fluctuate in a moment because of how we feel feel it in that moment. Third, I think we are, we all know this is a metaphor, it's a figure of speech. Paul often views the Christian church or life as fields, gardens, in which the owner has spent love and time on it, and he expects positive results. Right? He says, "In order that we might bear fruit for God." What is bear fruit for God? I mean, do we put one apple on orange here? No, right? It is. A character, it could be in how we influence people and impact lives. But it's a figure of speech of how we should respond positively. Another example, Ephesians 5, we walk in the fruit of light. And he defines it as goodness, righteousness, and truth. And some of these are not in the nine aspects of the fruit of the Spirit. So again, we see when we follow Jesus, we walk in the light, we expect to have some manifestations. Philippians 1 is the same. Okay, Ephesians 5, 1 is the opposite, right? How, what, when you learn something, you learn its definition, but you also learn its opposite. It says, do not participate in unfruitful deeds of darkness. Referring to people who are unregenerated, walking in darkness, Since their deeds do not have positive manifestations, results, and so we call it unfruitful. So when we look at this fruit of the Spirit Straight off, we think understand that there are character virtues of God. They are not comprehensive. It's not just our natural character, but God gives it to us. It could be part of our char- natural characteristic, but it is also not. So we cannot say that, oh, I'm like that, you know, I'm always impatient. So I can never have patience. The idea of the fruit of the Spirit is when we have the Holy Spirit of God and we live in trusting obedience in Christ, the Spirit of God enables us to demonstrate such characteristics. So the list goes on. It's not just a feelings, it's a matter of choice. And the expected changes because of the Holy Spirit who lives in us, and by the filling of the Spirit as we yield control to Him. So the question I'd like to ask is, where did Paul get this image of fruit? Have you wondered, like, how did he come up with this? Is it the Holy Spirit just drop it in his, in his mind, and then he's you know, his, his kind of zoned out, High or something, and just writes the word of God. No, certainly, Paul reads scripture, and scripture of his time is the Old Testament. And he gets his idea from the Old Testament. So I did a search on fruit in the Old Testament, and of course, you have all kinds of fruit, right? This fruit, that fruit. But I had to go and sort them out and came up with these four main texts. There are certainly others, but just a quick run through to give us an idea of what Paul was thinking about when he wrote fruit of the Spirit. Yeah, I had to come up with different things, okay, because I know Pastor Peter just talked about it, so I had to sit there and think, what can I say that he he didn't say? (laughs) Okay, anyway. Okay, first, when you think about fruit, I think this Psalm 1 comes to mind. Psalm 1 is definitely the jewel of the Psalter, right? In front, the Psalter, of course, is broken into five books. The first book, first Psalm is actually Psalm 2. Psalm 1 is actually the first Psalm of the entire Psalter, 150 Psalms, and it says, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. He who meditates on the law will be like a tree planted by a stream of water. And it talks about the leaf being green, and finally, it produces fruit. So in the Old Testament, the idea is that when you meditate on the law, and not just meditate on the law, when you obey it, you're not like, you know, that, that wicked, that sinner, that scoffer you bear fruit. Okay, so, fruit of the Spirit, we bear fruit when we, we obey the law, when we meditate on it, when we respond in obedience to God's revelation. Jeremiah 17, 5, 8. The prophet clearly quoted from Psalm 1. It begins with this, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose trust is the Lord. Then he quotes Psalm 1, for he will be like a tree planted by water, da-da-da, not cease to yield fruit. So, we yield fruit not just meditating and obeying the law, but here he says when we trust in the Lord. And right after this is of course the famous verse, Jeremiah 7, I think verse 10, where he says that our heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? But God searches our hearts and minds according to our deeds. So he's saying he's contrasting trusting in God and trusting in ourselves. See, we trust in ourselves, but you know, our heart is so deceitful. That even ourselves, we don't even understand it. And so God judges us based on, He searches our minds and judges us based on our deeds. The contrast here is between trusting in ourselves and trusting in God. Jeremiah is saying, we cannot trust ourselves because our hearts are deceitful. I'm sure we can attest to that. But your action shows your heart. So do you trust God ourselves? Facing problems and challenges, do we trust our own ways of getting things done or getting ourselves out of trouble? Or do we trust in God where well, we try but we trust and leave the results in God's hands, God's hand, and so we do not compromise our values? Um, I remember one of my kids, right? One day they came back and said, you know, I'm very scared during this test or exam. And so I prayed for Jesus to give me peace and I felt peace. And so after I, I did okay. Then the other one, you know, a pair of twins, the other one comes back and says, oh, I also felt very scared, but, you know, I didn't pray. And so I don't think I did well. And so the mother asked them, why didn't you pray? And she says, well, I thought about it, but I felt like I don't need to, you know. It's like, would God really care about this thing? And so sometimes we respond, and we ask ourselves, do we really trust God or do we trust ourselves? And The key to knowing it is actually how do we actually respond? What do we do to depend on ourselves, to get out of trouble? Or do we trust in the Lord by praying, committing to Him, but yet, of course, we still have to do it. There's a difference. Do we trust in ourselves or trust in God? Psalm 92 is interesting. It says that the righteous man will flourish like a palm tree Planted in the house of the Lord, they will flourish in the courts of God. They will yield fruit in old age. There's a contrast between the grass that will soon perish and the palm tree and cedar tree which enjoy a long, fruitful life. Now, what's the difference? The secret here is planted in the house of God. The psalmist is saying his source of life is to be found in the house of God, in the courts of God, that God is with him. He feels like his heart he feels the heart of forgiveness which flows from the altar. He has been cleansed by the water of the lever. The light of the golden lampstand has fallen on him and his prayers like incense have been presented to the throne of God. The blood of the lamp has been sprinkled for him on the mercy seat and the strength which comes from the nearness to God as symbolized by eating of show bread causes him not to fear and to yield fruit. So the idea of the psalmist says that he will yield fruit in the presence of God, in the temple where he's, in the courts of God where He's worshipping, where there's this supply of grace that's perpetual, inexhaustible, and fresh every morning. So for us, I think as New Testament believers, the ministry of God's presence is in the Holy Spirit who indwells in us, right? We are the temple of the Spirit. As a body of Christ, we're the temple of the Spirit through which we bear fruit. So how do we bear the fruit of the Spirit? Well, Psalm 92 says it's the presence of God, the Spirit that indwells in us. The last Old Testament text we'll look at is Isaiah 5, 4. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done it? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless one? Isaiah is bringing an indictment to Israel. He's saying that God has done everything and they were supposed to produce good fruit But they did not. Despite, you know, everything that the owner has done, sparing no effort to produce the best grape. He tilled the soil, removed the stone from the soil, planted the best vine available. He built a tower to protect the vineyard from the robbers. He prepared the time of harvest by hewing out the rocky soil to allow good growth. And he waits. But then instead of good grapes, what he got was wild grapes. And so he disclaims responsibility. He says, what else can I do? So the idea here is that Israel was not producing fruit. And then Isaiah was going to say that one day they will produce fruit. One day they will produce fruit when the Spirit is poured out on the land. Prophet Joel tells us it's the coming of the Holy Spirit. So again, we get this image to be fruitful. There will come a time when the Spirit of God will be poured forth on us. Of course, Isaiah goes on to list down a list of woes. He lists seven specific sins in the, in the life of Judah that caused them not to produce fruit. Each one is introduced by a woe. So he talks about covetousness, debauchery, arrogance, pride, drunkenness, injustice. And the idea is Israel did not have a fruitful life because of her sins. Yet behind all the sins is a, is a lack of trust. lack of faith in God. Now, is this list familiar? Yeah, Galatians 5, right? The the list of works of the flesh. And so this is what Paul is saying. That's where he drew the imagery and the ideas that when we do not have trust in God, we live according to the flesh. And these are the deeds of the flesh. So, fruitfulness in the Old Testament, how do we have it? From the law, meditating, obeying from trusting in God, from God's abiding presence, and from lacking trust in God. And so when we reflect on this, I think as New Testament believers, how do we produce the fruit of the Spirit? There lies our answers. We meditate on God's Word, trusting in His Word, instead of fretting and being worried. But we trust when we face the situation. And therefore we have peace. Something may not go your way, but you trust in the Lord and therefore you have patience. The presence of God is the fullness of joy, the fullness extent of joy. But that comes with trusting. Spending time in the presence of God, the abiding presence of God. So God unites man to himself so that there is a continual flow of grace and power to produce fruit. Just as a sap produces fruit on a tree, man is to trust in the Word, obey it, meditate on it, delight in it. Under these conditions, fruit is inevitable and God is pleased. The surrender of our control to the Holy Spirit. Again, the same concept of being filled with the Spirit. When we have the Spirit of God, we are expected to bear fruit. So let's go back to the definition. The fruit of Spirit is really a character qualities that God possesses. The Holy Spirit imparts to us and live in trusting obedience to Christ. These nine graces of virtues are a lifestyle of those indwelt and filled with the Spirit. It's a contrast with the works of flesh. It's not a result of observing a legal code, but an empowerment of the Holy Spirit. So it's like the Sermon of the Mount in a nutshell. It's like the extension of 1 Corinthians 13 on love. And ultimately, we think about fruit of the Spirit Is Christ-likeness, broken down to nine aspects so that we have handles of what it means to be Christ-like. There was a time when I looked at my own life and I said, wow, I think there's something wrong because I don't demonstrate any part of this fruit. You know, I'm anxious, I'm upset with people, I'm impatient. And I realized, you know, I was not trusting God in my situation. Dry, I feel dry, I I was not close to God and so I I have no patience for people. So How? Well, the scripture says we seek God, seek the filling of the Holy Spirit, walk in the Spirit, grieve not the Spirit, cringe not the Spirit. And so I began to evaluate, you know, especially a part about grieving not. The relationships in my life, how are they? You know, my colleagues and my wife. And as a result, I knew that I had to seek out reconciliation. Because there are these issues in the past, unforgiveness that have been eating in my soul. And so I ask you today, Look at yourself. Are you bearing the fruit of the Spirit? There was this other time, I was sitting in toastbox toast box writing my sermon, and I felt so unable to concentrate. Lots of worries. And, and it happened that, you know, that day was actually Thanksgiving in the States. And so I just sat down and wrote out all the blessings and thanksgiving in my life. Deliberately trying to count my blessings and to remind myself of what God has done. And it was an interesting experience because after the hour of sitting there, I I felt like my attitude and my heart changed. It was like a burden lifted up. So all these circumstances that I face are still the same, still the same stress and difficulties. But because of confession, repentance, of counting blessings, seeking the feeling of the Spirit, you know, the burden was lifted up. And so friends, are you bearing the fruit of the Spirit? We are expected to bear the fruit of the Spirit. Not continually, but certainly continually in the sense of um, each time we are renewed and again and again. So we, we show, bear the fruit of Spirit, and sometimes we are not, but once we are not, we seek to be, to be filled and we seek to demonstrate that again. So we talk about this fruit of the Spirit. And I think it's no coincidence that the first fruit is, is love called the primacy of love. Philip Yancey once shared about his teacher, Dr. Brand, who was teaching from Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit, and he said, these qualities, these are qualities good for you in every way. They are qualities of God who wants to grow them inside you. Yet as someone who has raised fruit trees, I know that from the fruit's perspective, the ultimate goal is reproduction. The fruit is attractive and beautiful so that the bird or perhaps someone like me will, will eat it and then drop the seed and deposit it in the ground so that it can grow. So later, as Yancy was walking with Dr. Brand, he heard him say, continue to explain. He says that we think of a fruit from our perspective, assuming its appeal is meant for our enjoyment, having peace, patience. Um. But he says, see, look at this apple. It's colorful, it's delicious, it's fragrant. From the point of view of the apple, Though our enjoyment is mainly a way to produce. Through our enjoyment is mainly a way to produce more apples. Everything from the fruit is oriented towards reproduction. So when we think about this, when we think about faith. Our faith orients us towards the world. It is never about ourselves. We have the fruit. Of, we have the gifts of the spirit, not to edify ourselves but to build up the church, to edify the church. We have the fruit of the Spirit, not so much to make us feel better or be at peace, but to reproduce for the world. Just as Paul said to the Galatians, you, my brothers, are called to be free. Do not use your freedom to indulge in in your sinful nature, but rather serve one another in love. And the entire law is summed up with this single command, love your neighbor as yourself. So that's why the first aspect of this fruit is love. D.L. Moody wrote this. He says, Joy is love exalting. Peace is love reposing. Long suffering is love untiring. Gentleness is love in action. Goodness is love. Sorry, goodness is love in action. Faith is love on the battlefield. Meekness is love under discipline. Temperance, which is self-control, is love in training. So what is love? Now, the Bible illustrates It's not a fluffy emo- emotion. It's not something abstract. It is in action. So when we go back to where Paul quoted that verse, right, which is Leviticus 19.18, 19, uh, fulfill the law when you love your neighbor as yourself. What does it mean? If we look at the context of Leviticus 19, actually, Moses gives us a very clear definition of love. At least, what he meant when he says, "Love your neighbor as yourself." Verse nine, he says, "Now, when you reap harvests of your land, do not reap the corners; nor shall you glean your vineyard. You shall leave it for the needy and the stranger." I am the Lord your God. So, the first aspect of loving your neighbors is saying that when you harvest, leave the corners, so they are not gathering for yourselves, but those who are in need can go take it. The first aspect of loving your neighbors is a concern for the poor. Deuteronomy 24 gives us the reason. He says the same thing, but he says, you must remember they are once slave in Egypt. God delivered you. So friends, similarly, we think of ourselves as once sinners saved by the grace of God, and now we are to show this, need, this care for people in need. Those who have been redeemed have a care for men's need. If you're worried, you know, if we give money, you know, how will these people use it, you know, on the streets and someone asks for money? Ah, we're thinking surely they're going to buy cigarettes or, or do something, right? But then you look at kids when they give. They do not think about motives. Will you do this? What are you use my money to do? A friend of mine used to work for Salvation Army, and she says one of the greatest blessings um, during her work was when they receive gifts from children. And often these gifts come with a letter. And one of them wrote, I broke, I broke my piggy bank for this. And so we see that as children give, they give it from the heart. Here, Moses is saying, when we love our neighbor as ourselves, the first is, do we have a concern for the poor? Or are they invisible to us because we are so wrapped up in our own bubble, and yet we say we are loving? Next, verse 11, the next verse is, you shall not steal, deal falsely, or lie to each other. With integrity, and it gives us a list. It says that you know, a neighbor might ask you to keep something, and then they forget, and you take it. Now that's not having integrity. Or they may enter into a transaction based on your word because you say, "Oh, this is good, go go get it." But is it true? Or are we taking advantage of our neighbor's hardship, taking their things by brute force? These may be acceptable business practices, but they are certainly not acceptable to the Israelite. So verse 11 tells us, love your neighbour, it means not stealing or dealing falsely with others. Verse 12, do not swear falsely by my name so as to profane the name of God. I am the Lord. When we're making promises in God's name. We're telling people, oh, the Lord is saying, but are we taking God's name in vain and swearing falsely? verse 13, When we oppress the weaker ones, basically he says do not oppress your neighbor or rob him. Do not keep the wages that are supposed due to that person. So when we say we love people, we must love them enough not to make their life difficult. You know, sometimes your colleagues ask you for things and you don't really like this person. He says, Ah, I don't know. But actually, he's right under your drawer. You know, don't make things difficult for people unnecessarily. Do you love your neighbor? Moses continues to say, he says, you should not curse a deaf man, nor place a stumbling block, but you should reveal your God, I am, I am your God. And he says, no, you know, I mean, someone blind walking by me, I don't stick out my leg and trip them. But this is not exactly what it means, right, in our context. Saying that, how do you treat people with less privileges, who have needs? I mean, last year when that, you know, the incident at, at this old man in the hawker center, he wanted to share a seat with a young lady or guy, and she didn't give him, and then, wow, you know, she, the, the, the boyfriend or whoever came charging towards the old man. So I, do, I, didn't, I don't know if you saw that video that went viral, or how you felt about it. You know, when people who are being taken advantage, how do we respond? If you were there, what would you have done? Would you have just sat around and said, oh, it's their business, not my business, you know? So do not curse a deaf man or, or place a stumbling block before the blind shall revere your God. I am the Lord. How do we treat the domestic helpers in our midst? You know, we meet up with the home, uh, the Jan Paul Young adults. I think twice a year, we meet up with the home ministry, people who have been, uh, who face hardship because they come to Singapore and they work, you know, and face unfair situations. So they go off to this organization. And many times when we meet them and hear their stories, we realize that, you know, it's easy for us to turn a blind side or have a blind spot in our own lives of how we treat others. Verse 16, do not slander among your people. You are t- not to act against the life of a neighbour. I am the Lord. The sin of character assassination of loose talk. When we carry tales and we say, oh, uh, can we pray for this person? You know what happened? And then we spend the next hour t- telling you know, all the sordid details of this particular brother or sister. That we call gossiping. Character assassination, loose talk. I'm sure you heard this story. You know this lady went up to the pastor and says, you know, I have this problem about about you know gossip. What should I do? So the pastor told her, right, go take this feather and uh, to go to every house of the people they've gossiped about and, and drop a feather. So she did that. And she came back and says, I've done that, now what? And then he says, can you go back and collect all those feathers? And she thought, it's impossible. And likewise, you know, words that come out from our mouth, mouths, we cannot take back. And we say you love your neighbours, then be sure let's not pass on information in a gossipy manner. And some information maybe that you just do not need to pass on and keep it to yourself even though you really feel like picking up the phone or texting to your wholesale group. Don't do that. Verse 17, you hate your fellow countrymen and the heart, you may surely reprove your neighbour, but shall not incur sin because of him. He says if you love somebody, you need to reprove them, to speak truth in love. But often instead, you know, we keep quiet, we try to avoid conflicts, and yet behind the person, we gossip and we criticise. Particularly in, church, in the church, right, we, it's not nice to tell somebody they've done something wrong. Or maybe that person just lacks self-awareness but we keep it in our hearts and we gossip about it. We are afraid of rupturing fellowship and so we bottle it up. But then the person does not learn. So Moses is telling us that if you love your neighbor, you need to tell them. Speak truth in love. Of course, it's easier said than done, right? I mean, it's easy for me to say that, oh, I'm a sinner and I'm so bad. But the moment you say me, it's like, what? What gives you the right to say it? You may say exactly the same thing as I would admit, but just because it comes out of your mouth, I will not accept it. Well, that's us. So, you see, what I'm trying to show you is that when we talk about love your neighbors, sometimes we think love is an abstract concept, it's a fluffy emotion, but we know that the Bible is not. It is always concrete. Concern for the poor, integrity, sanctity of God's name, oppressing the weak, care for privilege, don't gossip, rebuke in love, disposition to bless instead of curse. And I'm sure this list is not comprehensive, but Moses wrote this and then in verse 18 he says, therefore, this is what it means to love your neighbours. Because the Israelites are just like us today. Today we ask, what do you mean to love your neighbour? And they ask exactly the same questions. And so, it's listed up for them. And so next time when we are boiling over with wrath, imagine that you feel a hand touching you and causing you to hear a gentle voice whispering, but the fruit of the Spirit is love. Next time you say, I'll never speak to you again, I cannot endure you. Imagine a fresh wind fanning your fevered brow and hear the angel of mercy telling you, but the fruit of the Spirit is love. Next time you're inclined to find fault with somebody, let it chime out and ring out the fruit of the Spirit is love. If we wish to find fault, it's easy. You will not have to look too long before you find something that needs improvement, something that is wrong. But to what end? Whenever we are bent to the growling business, let's take a pause. And instead of growling, we grow. Allow Scripture to admonish you and saying, but the fruit of the Spirit is love. When we feel indignant because we have been badly treated, you're thinking of returning evil for evil, remember this text, that the fruit of the Spirit is love. But we protest and goes, but, but, but it's shameful. But I feel humiliated. And indeed, but Christ was shamed. And He was humiliated. So how do we cultivate the fruit? I'm not going to jump to this text. I know I've shown you it enough. But when we look at fruit, Again, John 15 is definitely the text that we need to go to, to abide in Christ. To allow the love of Christ to indwell in us. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5 that we are compelled by the love of Christ. John 12 says, unless a kernel of seed falls to the ground and dies, it remains a seed. But when it dies, it bears much fruit. So when we want to bear fruit, we must die to ourselves, but more so we must remember the one who died for us, that His love compels us. Again, once uh, my kids, they threw a big fuss, and then they told the mom, it's always the mom, right? It says, I have two voices in my head. One that tells me to make bad choices, that's Satan, and one tells me to make a good one, that's Jesus. And it's difficult to listen to Jesus. So right after that, we're having our daily night Bible reading, and it comes to this text where we read, God forgives those who loves us. And the little thing stood up and shrugged Said, Ah! The Bible is speaking to me again! And she did something that I never imagined. She took up the Bible and started kissing it. And I was struck. I was thinking, wow. I wish I would never forget what the gospel has done for me. That every time I talk about my Savior upon the cross, my heart will be deeply moved. Because friends, When we say we love one another, we tell people the gospel is merely one beggar telling another where there is food. Mother Teresa once told this story about uh, a family that was really poor and hungry. And finally she was given some rice and immediately the woman broke it up into two and she left. She took one pack and, and half of the food and she ran out. And when she came back, Mother Teresa asked her, where did you go? She says, I went to my neighbor because they are also hungry. She didn't keep everything to herself. She gave it to her neighbor. And so do we love our neighbor as ourselves because of the primacy of love? Let me just do a quick recap. In this series, we invited Dr. Clive to come, right? And first, we dealt with those gifts in general. And it says that, you know, that specifically about tongues, um, we look at Acts and Corinthians, they're different. In Acts, it's a known language. In 1 Corinthians, is not. And then we had a session that talks about um, our church stand, going through our history, what has happened, and why we are who we are today. And importantly for us, um, but we have different camps, and maybe personally we have different stands, but we come together as a body of Christ. We seek unity. And so the Spirit of God gives us gifts, right? We dealt with 1 Corinthians 12 to 14. Actually, Paul wanted to deal with 14, that those tongues issue that cause disorder in worship. But before that, he went to 12. He says, God gives us gifts. Why? For unity's sake, to build one another up. The gifts is never to edify ourselves, but to edify the body. Because He's preparing for the issue of the divisiveness of the tongues practice in the Church of Corinth. But even before He went to 14, where He actually, in 14, where He lays out this really logical argument about tongues and prophecy. Okay? You need to spend time reading 1 Corinthians 14. Trace out His argument, and you will see that Paul is saying that the only legit use of gifts is to edify others, not for yourself. But before he went to 14, he talks about 13. The greater gift, which is love. The supremacy of love. Love is the greater gift. Which do you think is greater? To be able to speak in tongues, to perform miracles, or to see a daughter and mother reconciled? Forgiveness, given. Bitterness, released. Heart, changed. And I can tell you, the greatest miracle is love. When you really dislike the person who has hurt you, but you release that bitterness, that change of heart, that for me is a greater miracle than anything else. The greatest, the greater gift is love. And so we ask, what is the connection between the fruit of the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit? And Paul explicitly says, it is love. So I came up with this statement, gifts edify the church, fruit sanctifies the individual, and yet love is the key. I think Paul makes it clear that without the fruit, I mean, without, that gifts without the fruit are powerless. They are little use. In fact, he says that give, gives, spiritual gifts without fruit is nothing. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels but do not have love, I become a noisy gong, a clanking cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy, and know all mysteries and all knowledge. If I have faith as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. Love is the very essence of the fruit of the Spirit. And so when God gives us gifts, it's to build up others. But what's important is the inner nature of Christ-like character. So both are important. We cannot say that um, as Christians, we do have spiritual gifts. We need spiritual gifts. But at the same time, we also need the inner working of the Spirit of God. So what's the connection? It is love. Let me end with this. Sometimes we come for worship, and I wonder, you know, um, like, are we like the prophets of Baal in First Kings 18? You know where they were in the frenzy and they're screaming and they're passionate about worship and fellowship. They worship for six hours and nothing happened. Right? They call Baal to send fire to burn those things and nothing happened. Elijah comes up and boom, fire came down from heaven. And their response was, Wow, Elijah is such a great preacher. Wow, he could send uh, perform such a great miracle. No, right? Their response was the Lord is God. They were overawed by God instead of Elijah. And so sometimes I think as Christians, on Sundays we gather, we have a wonderful time of fellowship and worship. But does it flow out into our our daily lives? Are we just so focused on Sundays rather than the weekdays of being church? Is there anybody who has ever said, you know, because of your life, they respond and says, the Lord is indeed God. Has anyone been amazed by your peace in your life? by the love that you demonstrated, the joy that you have? Have anybody envied you because of your self-control? Have you ever prayed for the filling of the Spirit so that people may know that the change was only possible because of the Spirit of God? The fruit of the Spirit is not just an intellectual concept. It ought, we ought to bear the fruit and the primary aim of fruit bearing is Reproduction is to testify to a true and living God that people may be in awe and says, the Lord is God.